Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. This morning, we have a uh, we have a big job ahead of us, so I need your help, okay? Um, we've had time to worship, and as we, and we sang a song about God's Word a little while ago, and this time of our sermon portion of our service is also a time where we continue to worship. But I'm going to need your help today because we've got a lot to do, and uh, we've got three things we have to do here. Uh, one is, I promised you that I would uh, uh, bring us to the conclusion of our um, uh, series on the appearances of Christ, and so we need to talk about the final post-resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. So we have to accomplish that today. Secondly, uh, I think I'm a little loud, you guys. Am I a little loud? It's a little, it's a little bit loud. Bring me down a little bit. Thanks. So uh, secondly, we also left uh, two weeks ago that I would uh, share my view on what happened to the second part of the Joel 2 slash Acts 2 prophecy where it appeared that the sun was going to turn black and the moon to blood and the great and terrible day of the Lord would come. What happened to the second part of that prophecy? So we have to address that today. The third thing, I need to give you a practical application to take home with you so you don't leave here today thinking, well, so what? Who cares? Right? So we have to make a practical application and the fourth thing I have to do today is I have to talk to you about my, my new fig tree, okay? <laughs> and what that has to do with our sermon. Uh, many of you know, um, if you've been around here for a while, uh, you've indulged me over the years to uh, talk about my fig tree. And last year, I finally got tired of my fig tree not bearing figs that were ripe because it was the wrong type of fig tree, the wrong species for this climate. It grew fine, it's just that the figs never ripened, except one year I had a couple. So I cut it down, and um, some of you were quite hostile about that. <laughs> and uh, I didn't curse it or anything, I just cut it down, <laughs> I removed it. It's gone, and I planted a new one. And I planted this time the kind that Jerry Johnson had at his house down by Green Lake, because I was jealous, because he'd get these big bunch of ripe, green, nice, fresh figs, and so I planted that kind of tree, Jerry. It's my, it's my one-year-old baby. It's been there for a year now. So it's, uh, it's one, my one-year-old, my proud new father of a new one-year-old tree. And, however, this winter, it was just a stick. I mean, it looked like one of these microphone stands. <laughs> and I told Teresa, well, I'm going to give up. I was about ready to cut that one down, too, and give up. And, but there it is. It's got leaves. It's got figs on it. And it actually has something to do with my sermon today. So, if you would open your Bible, let me get my notes out, that might help. Um, Gary, what did you do with my notes? Oh, there they are, right there, okay. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. So, let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to address the first question today, the first issue that you need to help me work through today. You're going to have to pay attention now, and... and, and um, uh, and for those of you that are visiting with us, welcome. We're glad you're here today. And uh, we'll do the best here to get you get caught up into this uh, study as we can bring this to a conclusion 
uh, today. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, it is our prayer that your word would be heard. Uh, Lord, we never take lightly the, the privilege and the freedom we have to share your word, to freely proclaim it, to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, and to apply it to our lives. We thank you for the freedom we have to do this as a free people. And so to that end, we offer you these next few moments as an act of worship. In Christ's name, amen. Now to deal with the prophecy of Joel, and that is, well, just look at Joel chapter 2 for a moment. And where we left off there was on the day of Pentecost. We did this on Pentecost Sunday two weeks ago. After the apostles stood up at Pentecost and spoke in tongues, and everybody was confused and wondering what was going on as they heard them preach and teach in their own languages that they shouldn't have been able all at once, all these different languages. These were human languages. They were not angelic. These were human languages they heard. And Peter says, no, these men are not drunk, as some of you think. Verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, and to the Jews in the audience, they knew what this meant. This were the days that preceded the coming kingdom. The last days, the end of the era, when they would finally receive the kingdom and be free from Gentile domination and the, and the Messiah would come. This is what and this is from Joel chapter two. I will pour out my spirit on all your people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and they're speaking in tongues. That's what they were doing. Prophecy. You you might think the word prophecy right away means telling the future, but the word prophecy in the Bible means to speak for God. And these men were speaking for God. They were they were giving prophetic utterances. They were giving revelation from God in all these different tongues. As per Joel chapter, as Joel chapter two prophesied, and he said, "Your old, your, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy." And Peter says, "This is what you're witnessing. They are prophesying. They are speaking in tongues. They are speaking for God. This is what you're witnessing." And then the second part, and this is what I ask you to think about: What happened to the rest of this? Because it's all part of one package. This is part of one package, and this is a verbatim quote almost from Joel chapter 2. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. These, these are bad things. This is not good. This is terrifying. This is the tribulation time. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls out because of what's going on and calls out in the name of the, God, of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. And he goes on to, re, to tell them about Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, who was the Messiah, who God had sent, and that they should repent and believe and evidence their repentance by washing and, 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 the, and, and the Jewish ritual of cleansing and evidence this repentance. Now, where this all began, though, is back in Acts chapter 1. We were talking about the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And before Christ was taken from them up to heaven, in verse 6 of Acts 1, when they met together, they've been together 40 days, Jesus is about to leave, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's almost an anticipatory question. It's not, it's not like, well, Lord, no. Lord, it's, it's like, now you're going to, right? Now. 
Okay, now we, un- we didn't understand. We didn't understand you had to die for our sins and rise from the dead. We didn't understand that. Now we understand that. Now it makes sense. You've talked to us about the prophecies of the suffering servant of God. It's all coming together. So now is the kingdom, right? The kingdom's going to come. The Messianic kingdom, the Messiah is going to come back. He's going to rule over our enemies. He's going to set us free. He's going to set up that worldwide kingdom where Isaiah the prophet said, nation will no longer learn war against one another. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. The lamb will lay down with the lion. It will be a time of true peace and justice and righteousness on earth. Right? Right, Lord? That's the question. And I want you to notice Jesus' answer. It's not for you to know the times or dates. The Father has set by his own authority, but when you will, you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all the earth, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after that, he was taken from them. Now, when you consider this question, I want you to, to, to also reflect with me for a moment. This is the second time they've really asked this question. If you would go back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Just turn back in your Bibles this morning. And incidentally, if you don't have a Bible, we would be glad to give you one. We have some Bibles to give away. We'd be glad to give you a Bible. Matthew, chapter 24. And Matthew, chapter 24 and chapter 25 are what are known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives it's east of Jerusalem. It's up on the hill. He's looking down over the city of Jerusalem. His disciples come to him. And as he is, as he is sitting there, in verse 3, this is after Palm Sunday. They've already come into the to temple. The people have cried, you know, the Messiah has come. They've thrown their coats in the palm branches. They've celebrated. There is a huge messianic fervor about Jesus being there and the disciples are getting anxious that here they've been for three years and it's finally going to come to fruition. And in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, quietly, and said, Lord, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This is almost the same thing they ask in Acts. They asked this question earlier. There's this anticipation. Lord, what will be the sign? When will this happen? When will you come? When will you come as king? When will you come as Messiah? When will the kingdom finally come and you liberate us from our oppressors and set up this wonderful kingdom of justice and peace on earth and righteousness? When will this happen? And so for the next two chapters in your Bible, 24... And 25, you have what's known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus basically lays out in quite detail what will happen, the coming tribulation, the terrible things that are going to happen that precede God, then God's judgment precedes the coming of the, his second, his return to earth, his coming to set up the kingdom. And so Jesus begins in verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many You'll hear wars and rumors of war. And he goes on to talk about earthquakes and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pangs. And then in verse 15, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And everybody there knew what he was talking about. 
He was talking about the prophecies from the 70th week of Daniel in the book of Daniel, where Daniel clearly lays out this seven-year period. He even gives the weeks and the months. And, and the three and a half years of this false peace and the second three and a half years where God's judgment will be unleashed on the earth. And, and the same things you read about in the book of Revelation. The, the frightening, terrible times when people cry for the rocks to fall on them. And, 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 and it's so terrible. And Jesus says, listen, when you see this happen, when you see the abomination spoken of through prophet, no, you better leave. Because it's about to happen. This, and, and he goes on to explain how dreadful it will be. And then finally, look at verse 29. And this is, I'm linking this up with Acts 2. This is, this is the same story. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened to blackness. The moon will not give its light because, as Joel tells us, it will turn to blood. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's these cataclysmic events in the heavens and on earth at the time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So in Joel chapter 2, that is, I mean, Acts chapter 2, where Joel 2 is quoted, where they say to him, Lord, okay, they, we already asked this once. Are you go, when is this going to happen? And, and, and now you've died, you've risen from the dead. Okay, now it's going to happen, right? And he says, I'm not going to tell you the dates, but you go to Jerusalem and wait. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Peter gets up in Jerusalem and he prophesies and quotes this passage from Joel 2. These are the same men that listen to Jesus talk about these things. And he says, this is the being fulfilled, and the next thing that's going to happen is the darkness and the moon to blood and the cataclysmic events, and then the coming of the Lord. It all fits together. It would have been, it would have been unusual if the disciples wouldn't have asked about this. And so our question is, when did it happen? The first part happened. When did the moon turn to blood? When did the sun turn dark? When did the stars fall from the sky? When did these horrible cataclysmic events happen that people are terrified? When did it happen? So we have basically three options. One, it's all allegorical. It's all allegorical. And that, that is Bible language that simply talks about bad things happening in the future. And they've already happened. That's one option. It's you understand? It's allegorical. It's an allegory. Uh, some would use the word metaphorical. Um, it's the idea that this Bible language is used to describe things that, that really didn't mean literally it's going to happen, but that bad things are going to happen, and bad things did happen, and it's been fulfilled. That's one option. The second option is God changed his mind. And it's not going to happen. God changed his mind, and it's not going to happen. The third option is there was something that no one knew about that was going to take place to postpone the fulfillment of that second part. It is still going to happen, but something took place to interrupt that and to break that 
in Joel and, and Acts 2, that prophecy, something took place. And it still is going to happen, but something happened in between then and at least till now to postpone it. Those are our three options. Now, in order to answer that, we have to go to our second point this morning, our second task. Now, I need you to put all that somewhere in your brain, okay? You got a place in your brain for all that for a few minutes? Do you? Somewhere? There's a left side, there's a right side, you choose, I don't care. Some of you are creative, some of you are, are uh, engineers, okay? Um, not that engineers aren't creative, but anyway. Um, <laughs> put it there somewhere and just hang on to it for a few minutes, could you please? Hang on to it, I'm asking a lot of you, I know that. But just hang on to that for a few minutes, don't let it go. And we want to talk now, we're going to switch gears. We're going to go into gear two, and we're going to talk about the last appearance of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, because it has something to say about that. For this, I need you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, one of the Apostle Paul's very early epistles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Really, I think it would be fair to say this, this really is the resurrection chapter, at least in the epistles. This is the resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, Paul says, what I was given by revelation, this is Apostle Paul, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is very important. This is, this is numero uno. This is number one. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried... That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's another study for itself. What's he referring to there? It's all according to the scriptures. And that he appeared in resurrected form. They saw him in his resurrected, glorified, but, but his body. It was not, these are not just visions or images. These are literal uh, optical nerve at work, okay, to see the Lord Jesus Christ physically in his resurrected body. And then he's going to list them. He appeared to Peter physically. And then to the twelve physically. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. We talked about that two weeks ago. Packed this sanctuary shoulder to shoulder. Crammed 500 people in a very uncomfortable uh, a uh, bad way to sit in here, you know, but you could do it. And Jesus appeared to that many physically in one setting. Most of them are still living, he says, though, ha- though some have fallen asleep. You can ask them. Then he appeared to James. I think that's, I think that's Jesus' brother, James, his literal brother, his half-brother, the son of Joseph and Mary, James, who became the chief apostle in Jerusalem. He appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. So that's the bigger group than the 12 of what's considered the apostles. Last of all, here is the final appearance of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared to me, Paul, as to one, and the NIV says, abnormally born. King James says, one born out of due time. This is the last appearance of the resurrected Lord was to Paul. Now, for it to fit into this context, I'm assuming it has to be a 
physical appearance of the Lord. He saw him. This is not just a vision. He appeared to me. I know many of you maybe have studied this a little bit in this last word here as to one abnormally born can be a stillbirth, an abortion, uh, you know, a, a, a birth that was not, that was early, and because it was early, it, it didn't survive, something like that. That's the background of that word. But I, I think the idea of the NIV, I think the NIV catches it pretty good. I was abnormally born. I, it, sh- I sh- it shouldn't have been me. I shouldn't have seen him. Uh, the, the rest of these, had a, they had a right to see him. They were disciples. They were his brother. They were apostles. I didn't even have a right to see him, but I did. And the question is, when did Paul see Jesus? Okay, now I know I'm taking you all over the Bible here today, but you've got to help me out now. You're still hanging on to something from our previous discussion. We need to talk about this. When did Paul see Jesus? If you go over to Acts chapter 9, Dr. Luke, the physician, some of you here are physicians, and I think you have a, pre- a special appreciation for maybe Luke's writings. Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke writes in chapter 9. He's a friend of Paul's and a traveling companion of Paul, and he gives us this classic story of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Meanwhile, verse 1, Saul, his name is Saul, his Hebrew name, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the Bible. Do you know that? Going back to Genesis, it's the oldest continually inhabited, inhabited city in the Bible, Damascus. It's the same place where it is today. It's Damascus, Syria, which you hear about so much. He's going there with letters to the synagogues so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem and kill them like he did Stephen. He was in charge of Stephen's killing. He is brutal. He is rounding up men, women, and children and bringing them as prisoners and trying to get them stoned if they won't repent, if they won't blaspheme the name of Jesus. He is the one, the chief one responsible for killing the new Christian believers. And he's enraged, and he goes to Damascus with these letters. And while he's on the way there, verse 3, he got close to Damascus on his journey. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting me. And then Paul, Paul recounts this himself. Paul tells this story twice in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. He tells a story in his, when he's given his defense. And he includes in there that he says to him, Lord, what will you have me to do? What do I do now? You're the Messiah. I'm, we killed the Messiah. Now we're killing your followers. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Who is Paul persecuting? Christians. Believers. Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, for the most part. They are so closely connected to their Lord that, that Jesus says, you're persecuting me when you do this. Why are you doing this? And, and, and Paul says, well, what do I do now? He says, get up. Go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They were also part of this company of going to rest believers. They stood there speechless, and, and, and they, didn't know what to, they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do because they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, went and opened his eyes. He could see nothing, and they led him by hand blind 
for three days into Damascus. Now, the interesting thing is, it really kind of puzzled me a little bit this week as I, I, I reread this again. In all three tellings of this story, Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, he never once says what he saw. All he says is what he heard. Nowhere does he say what he saw. So we are left with either what he saw was this blinding, glorified light of God that was so blinding, like when Moses went up the mount, that it threw him to the ground and blinded him, and that's what he saw. But in keeping with the other appearances in 1 Corinthians 15, I I personally think he had to have seen the, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He just doesn't tell us. So we are kind of left to our imagination. Um, this is imagination. This, this is fiction. This is fiction. We're having our uh, book sale today. $5 a bag for books. Even if you don't need them. You know, really. Okay. Teresa's saying, you don't need to buy more books. <laughs> this book was in the book sale. And nobody bought it, because you probably don't know what it is. This one, I'm not going to let you take home in a bag for $5. I'm going to put it back out there. But if you want this book, you've got to pay $5 for this book. It is well worth it. You buy this book for $5 and read it. I will take you out for coffee and tell you how the rest of the story ends with this author, Shalom Ash. Shalom Ash is an excellent, uh, was an excellent Yiddish writer who wrote several books and plays, and he was a, an expert on first century culture and life. In, ironically enough, he wrote a book called The Nazarene, about the life of Jesus, and he wrote a book called The Apostle, about the life of Paul. This is by far the best fictional account of the life of Paul, because it is just swamped in first century Jewish culture. Really. Um, in fact, it was such that he was such an, a, a, a popular Yiddish writer that he took a lot of a scorn from his fellow Jews for daring to write these very um, affectionate and positive works about Jesus and Paul to the point that many would ask, Did, this man must have been a Christian. Uh, well, you read the book, pay the $5, I'll take you for coffee, and I'll, I'll tell you about that. Listen, here, here's his fictional account. This is fiction, right? Everybody got that? It's fiction, but this is, you know, we have to use our imagination. Before Saul stands a man, a man who is spirit and flesh and blood. He is taller than any man Saul has ever seen, yet he is not a giant. He is an ordinary man, a rabbi in his prayer shawl, with great eyes, mournful yet radiant, filled with faith and love, Eyes such as Saul has often seen among his disciples. His beard and earlocks are black, interwoven with gray. A man, not an angel, clothed in white, as if he's clothed for the Sabbath. Even in his present condition, Saul's thoughts are clear enough for him to recall that God created man in his own image. Therefore, he who stands before him in the likeness of a man may be a spirit of the Lord, but he stretches out his hands to Saul, and the sorrow on his face is a human sorrow. 
His eyes are filled with tears, in the midst of which swim the brown pupils. His lips are distorted in pain, as though all the anguish of the world has passed into him. And he stretches out his hands to Saul. And the unhappy voice is that of a simple man who suffers, even as Saul has seen so many suffer. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In the voice, Saul hears the silent protest of all those whom he has tormented. In the faces of the man, in the expression of pain on the thin lips, he sees all the pain of all those whom he has caused to suffer. Who art thou, Lord? I am Yeshua of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. It's fiction. But this, this picture of, he saw something. He saw the resurrected Lord. You can have this book for $5. Don't put it in a bag. And I'm going to throw in an extra. This one is mine. This is, I have two copies of the Nazarene. Uh, Donna, I'm going to put this back there too. You can also buy this for $5. Okay? Just like at the fair. Two for $10. All right? Okay, you can't go wrong with that. Um, trust me. Trust me. Uh, you want to be the first to grab those books. They're great. Saul of Tarsus. He was the last one to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? What was the purpose in that? What was the purpose in Saul of Tarsus being the last one to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? It was part of his credentials as an apostle. He had to be an eyewitness of Jesus to be an apostle. But we'll move to our last point. It has to do also with his commission to the Gentile world. God was doing something new. What does this have to do with Acts 2 and Matthew 24? I vote. And what does this have to do with my fig tree, by the way? You think that's funny, huh? Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you like my fig tree. Matthew 24. I would share them with you, but I'm only going to have five figs, it looks like. Matthew chapter 24, where we were reading earlier, where Jesus says all these terrible things are going to happen, but then you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the air. Verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, they're big, broad. Put my fig tree back up there, can you, Cliff? You put it back up there, you get rid of my fig tree. There it is. The leaves are like that on a fig tree. This is a small tree. This tree is only about this tall, okay? This is a small one. But look at the leaves on there. And Jesus says, when the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now look at the guys, you guys saying about this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He has just finished telling them about the great and terrible day of the Lord and says, you will, this generation will see this. Because my words will not pass away. Joel chapter 2, quoted by Peter at Pentecost. It will not pass away. It will happen. So thanks, Cliff. I opt for number three. Something happened. That was postponed. This is still going to happen. That great and terrible day of the Lord. Read the book of Revelation. 
Read it. You can read it. It's not hard. You might think it's difficult. Just read it with this in mind. God wins and Satan loses. It's not hard. That's the big picture. Read it. God's word will not pass away. I vote for option three that the second part of Joel 2 and Matthew 24 and 25 was put on hold. It's postponed. But it is going to happen. And that is because God did something unprophesied. Unrevealed. It wasn't, a, it wasn't plan two. It was part of his plan all along. And that is, in conclusion, in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3. And I know I've asked a lot of you today. And I appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate that you've allowed me to do that. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, chapter 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, because in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, where he tells his story of when he saw Jesus, whatever he saw, and when he was converted, and he is told by God and by Ananias, I am calling you, Paul, because I am sending you to the Gentile world. You will be my advocate. You will be my missionary to Jews, Gentiles, to kings in the Gentile world. I am not sending you to strictly proclaim the coming Messianic kingdom. I'm sending you out to talk about something new that, that I'm, I'm revealing now. And that is this new people of God, the church, the body of Christ. It is something new. Look what he says here. You have heard about the administration. That's the word dispensation of God's grace given to me for you. Verse 3. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. I've already written to you briefly about it. Verse 5. This was not made known to men in other generations as it is now being revealed by the Spirit of God to his holy apostles and prophets. Then he tells us what it is. Here it is. I'm here to talk about a mystery, something un, un, unrevealed. God didn't lay this out. The idea of Gentile salvation is not the mystery. That was part, that's part of the kingdom all along. But he says, here's something new. And here's the mystery, verse 6, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promises in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel, that a gift of God's grace given to me. This grace, reading down into verse 8, was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make plain to everyone the dispensation of this mystery for ages past, kept hidden in God. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the whole universe. And he goes on to give this prayer of thanks for God's wonderful plan. What's this got to do? Tie it all together. The last resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ was to Saul of Tarsus. The purpose was to send him to the Gentile world with a new message. You don't, this is not going to take place in Jerusalem. This is not in the context of Judaism. This is not in context of the Messiah offering the kingdom to Israel. That is, that is yet to come, but God is doing something new. Jew and Gentile alike, pagans, ungodly, 
sinful pagans who were repulsive. Remember, remember Peter wouldn't even go to Cornelius, wouldn't even go to his house. God three times had to say, you're going, Peter. No, I'm not going. I've never, I've never been in that. I'm not doing it. Acts chapter 10, read it. These sinful, repulsive pagans are welcome through simple faith in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, apart from any cleansing of the Mosaic law, apart from anything to do with the temple, apart from anything to do with the literal thousand-year kingdom, they are welcome to come right now through simple faith and receive God's grace and eternal salvation. That, my friends, is the mystery that is now unveiled to the Apostle Paul. And that is who we are today. That is who you are. That is who I am. We are the church, the body of Christ. And we believe when this era, this dispensation, this age is over, and we are called home to be with the Lord, all of us, at that time, we believe God's word will come to pass. And he will bring in that terrible time of tribulation and he will bring the wonderful thousand-year kingdom where finally, listen, go home and read the papers today. Turn the news on. I ask you, are we living in the kingdom of God? Is this what the kingdom of God looks like? Hundreds of young girls kidnapped? People tortured? People slaughtered? Is this what the kingdom of God looks like? Or is that kingdom yet to come where finally there will be peace on earth and goodwill to men? It's going to happen. Joel chapter 2 is going to come to pass when this era of the body of Christ is over and God finishes his prophetic plan for the world. Now, here's what you can take home with you today. Really, I'm going to quit now. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is what I want you to take home today about the Apostle Paul and his salvation. What a wonderful plan. God, who else? What else? How, why would you choose Paul? Why would you choose Paul? Verse 12 of chapter 1. Of first, I'm in 1 Timothy. If you like, I'll just read it to you. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointed me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He was not the kind of person you want for a neighbor. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I am first in line. But for that very reason, what? That very reason. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited 
patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Don't ever let anyone tell you that they have gone too far that they can't be saved. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you honestly have to say, I've never received Christ as Savior, and you're thinking to yourself, you don't know what I've done, Pastor Jim. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know what anybody here is like. We are all sinners saved by grace. There is nobody here, and there is nobody in this world that is beyond the scope of receiving God's grace and forgiveness for sins. Don't ever say that. Don't ever believe that. And don't ever look at anyone. Don't you ever look at anyone, no matter how bad they are, and say that person is not worth praying for because God does not want that person. That's why he saved Saul of Tarsus. Amen. After Shalom Ash wrote the Nazarene about Christ, he took a lot of criticism from his uh, friends. He finished this book on the Apostle Paul. He wrote one on Mary, too, and simply called Mary. Uh, 1942-43, these were written. He finished the book on the Apostle. The book is all over. The writer adds, I thank thee and praise thee, Lord of the world, that thou hast given me the strength to withstand all temptations, overcome all obstacles, those of my own making and those made by others, and to complete the two works, the Nazarene and the Apostle, which are one work, so that I might set forth in them the merit of Israel, whom thou hast elected to bring the light of the faith to the nations of the world for thy glory and out of thy loving kindness to mankind. I'd like to tell you, this man embraced Christ and became a believer, but he wrote one more little book and explained why he couldn't do that. Why can't you do that? What's keeping you today? Kyle's shaking his head. Came, how old were you when you became a Christian, Kyle? 30. 30 years old. Why can't you become a believer today? And Christ died on the cross, paid for your sins, and offers you eternal life, forgiveness for sins, if you, like Saul, will simply believe and receive his forgiveness for sins. Father, I thank you for this congregation. Thank you for their patience this morning as we've spent a little extra time in your word. Uh, but Father, we take home with us the grace of God. Lord, every one of us here was as lost a sinner as Saul of Tarsus because you are holy and we are sinful. But you chose to show your love, your grace, and your mercy. And we love you, God. We love you, God. And I pray, Lord, if there be one person here today who does not know Christ the Savior, whether they're 13 or 30 or 93, that you would open their heart to the gospel and they would receive Christ Jesus as Savior and receive forgiveness for sins. For it's in his name we gathered and we leave rejoicing in the resurrection one more Sunday. And all God's people can say it together. Amen. Amen.